Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And on this week's show, Marianne will be joined by physician Dr. Hope Fredausian, founder and CEO of the Phoenix Zones Initiative, author of Phoenix Zones, Where Strength is Born and Resilience Lives, and an expert in public health whose work focuses on the link between human and animal rights, health, and well-being. Those are some relevant topics for many reasons. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's one of the few people who's really bringing in the whole connection. Well, I mean, I shouldn't say that because I think there is growing awareness of this, but she is really at the forefront of bringing in animals and what's happening to them as part of the whole public health issue, both because they're important in and of themselves and because of the impact it all has on us and what's happening in the world. So that is a really, really useful topic at the moment. On this week's Flock bonus segment, I will be continuing my conversation with Hope. If you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you are not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you are a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern where we have some very inspiring guests and some really inspiring conversations about activism and life in general. It always features a recently aired podcast guest. So we've also been having a lot of new flock members from all over the world join. So it's very cool. We have a few moments where we share, people who want to share, share what's going on in their corner of the world as far as animal activism. So if you are a member of the flock, check out that flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And while you're writing to info at ourhenhouse.org, you can set up some one-on-one conversations with me too to discuss your activism. So I did want to just take a moment before we get chatting or get squawking, as it were, to kind of acknowledge what a difficult moment we are in right now in the world. And as as you said earlier when we were planning this conversation, should we nod to the darkness in the world? So this is an official nod to the darkness in the world. Yeah, it's always a, a choice whether we're going to talk about about what's going on in the world or whether we're just going to be, you know, talking about our animal issues and, and, and what's going on and bringing up the news. But I'll tell you, I, I can't imagine that a lot of people listening aren't overwhelmed with this darkness because I certainly am, and I think you are. And and I noticed that the other day we were watching West Side Story. The new one, yeah. Yeah, we decided to watch it together. So I was over at, at you and your wife's house. It was, I love the music of West Side Story. I haven't actually seen it in like since the last movie, which was a very long time ago. I'm probably one of the few people alive who actually saw the last movie. Anyway, I, I couldn't get through it just because the story is is very, very sad. And I thought extremely timely. I think some people have reviewed that movie and said it was a piece just of its time and is no longer relevant. But I did not think that at all. I think it just really, really portrayed the conflict, so much of the conflict that we see in the world in a, in a very specific way. And I just couldn't get through it. It was just too sad. And I knew it was coming and it was just too sad. And And I had to get off Twitter for a while. I hope I stick to it. I've only been doing that for today, but I already think I feel a little better because it's just, I mean, I try to keep up with the news, but 
the news is just, I mean, we're used to it. As animal activists, we're used to ignoring how, like horror, uh, we're, we're used to ignoring the fact that terrible things are going on right now. So I guess there's a limit to how used you can get to it. But with everyone ignoring climate, which is really, really scary, but the news being very bad, and of course the war in Ukraine, it just, that is, we're bombarded with the news from that. And all of it is just so heartbreaking. And and like a million other things too, it's just, it's just more than we can take. Uh, and, you know, that's a stupid thing to say in light of the fact that other people in the world are actually truly suffering, but, but you guys know what I mean. Yeah. Well, it's, we've talked before about like, there is a possibility that animal activists are slightly more attuned to dealing with utter despair, but you know, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe it's just like our cup runneth over. That's probably the wrong use of that phrase, but it, cause is that, that's a positive phrase. I think it's positive, but yeah. I guess you could use it for, for this moment. Yeah. Our cup runneth over with, with, with just poison, like <laughs> just poison. I guess I'll just sort of say as our nod to the darkness in the world, that if you are out there and you are nodding either literally or in your head, we see you, we get you. We hope that our head house can be a place for you, for the community that we can all sort of join together around. And also as a reminder to choose hope as a strategy in getting through it, which I don't think is a bad thing. I think we can, we can choose hope even if it's utter bullshit at first. So I got to get away last week for a few days and I have to say it was like more necessary than I realized until the day I woke up from being away for a few days. And I woke up and I I felt like it was almost a physical sensation of a physical weight removed from my shoulders. Like I was in such dire need of being away for a few days. So that was wonderful. Well, I think you have chosen the moment. Well, they say that COVID's going to peak again. I don't think that the predictions are necessarily dire. I, I don't know. I don't know yet, but clearly we're in a very good place right now. So I'm so glad you got a chance to travel. And I'm so glad you got a chance to travel to a place that has an iconic, like unbelievable, like just different than any place else, vegan entity that you get to tell us about. Right. So my best friend was visiting Providence, Rhode Island from LA where she lives. And she has frequent reason to go to Providence. So I met up with her. First of all, I took the train there from Rochester, which was a 10 and a half hour Amtrak trip. And I got myself my own little room because it was a work trip. You know, I was working the whole time. And so it was my office. And I just want to say again, for the nine zillionth time since we started our henhouse, how much I love the train. And it's like, super vegan friendly. They brought me a meal. There was a vegan enchilada, which is, it was so good, really good. And I just loved it so much. I mean, I would travel that way anytime. I would live on the train if they let me. Yeah. Well, they might let you if you had enough money to <laughs> just continue. To <laughs> I don't. Yeah. I don't. Well, it unfortunately is kind of expensive to do it that way. And hopefully, hopefully that will change soon. But in any case, I went to Providence. So I arrived in Boston, which I loved being in the big city energy. It was 10 and a half hours later. I arrive in Boston. 
I did go to Mai Tai Vegan, um, which is sort of also iconic by itself, but that's not what you were talking about. It's only iconic because it's a good old main mainstay for vegans. And then off to Providence, which is only like 50 minutes from Boston. And as people who already are familiar with, I, I got to go to Plant City, which is a Matthew Kenny enterprise. And they call themselves the world's first plant-based vegan food hall and marketplace. So they have four restaurants and three bars, uh, all created by Matthew Kenny. They have a coffee bar, a bakery. They have a marketplace. It's like a store where you could buy all of your like vegan cheese and vegan milks. And upstairs, they have two different restaurants. So I, I ate, I have eaten here before, not at the Providence location, but I ate at Double Zero, which I've actually... <laughs> been lucky enough to eat at the New York City one and the LA one of Double Zero. So it was fun to go to the Providence one. But let me tell you, this was like the building was right on the water and right by that footbridge. Like if you imagine Providence, you sort of imagine probably a footbridge and like literally at the end of that footbridge is the entrance to Plant City. And it was just, it was crowded. It was exquisite food. It was like an experience, truly an experience. So holy crap. Go to Providence. I mean, no, I know. know. Yeah. Providence, Rhode Island. You just never know where you're going to get world-class vegan food. Yeah. Shout out to Wildflower, which is a fully vegan cafe and bakery as well. I I got, this is going to sound weird, but I really like sweet potato desserts. So I got like sweet potato fudge there, which is made out of sweet potatoes. And I've I've actually been experimenting with making my own sweet potato treats recently. Like I made a mousse out of frozen sweet potato chunks. So good. Really good. So I really enjoyed that. I know that's weird of me, but in any case, I'm back now and I'm I really loved going away. I, I encourage you if you're listening to this, staycations can also be wonderful. You and I took a staycation last year. And you get to kind of have a different relationship with the city that you're in than you usually do. So definitely check that out. I also want to say like, like though you mentioned that you were in Boston and, and you did have a vegan meal there. No, I don't think either of us is very familiar of where's the best place to go in Boston or where are the best places to go in Boston. So if anybody wants, not that I'm going to be in Boston, like probably for the rest of my life, but <laughs> If anybody wants to fill us in on where those places are, I'd be very curious. There is a sort of higher end vegan restaurant in Somerville, which is right outside of Boston. Yeah, I've been I've been there, I think. But yeah, in the city itself, I mean, I know there's by Chloe and places like that, but and Mai Tai, but there weren't there it's not like a ton of vegan options. Obviously in Cambridge, you've got your Cambridge stuff too. In Boston, no. I I did have a really good, very expensive latte, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, do you have soy milk? And it's like the hipster working there had never heard of it. She was like, milk made out of soy? No, we have we have oat milk. <laughs> I'm like, oh right, I forgot. I'm not like I'll take oat milk because they have it everywhere. But like, come on, let's go with the soy program. Yeah, I, I'm very fond of soy milk myself. I mean, I love oat milk. I love the flavor of oat milk because it's very sweet. But soy milk, I felt, is usually richer. But, you know, the debates continue. Speaking of richer, I did, and I think we interviewed them, but the Elmhurst milked, we interviewed Elmhurst, right? You you did that interview, I think. The, I don't um, remember ever doing that interview. Okay, well, 
We, I, I'm pretty sure you did. Anyway, I did notice that Elmhurst has a new pistachio milk uh, barista oh, version. Yeah, I want to try that. I love me some pistachios. Yeah, I think that maybe that got announced at the recent uh, Expo West, which is like a giant trade show for uh, health foods. And it's very vegan, vegan, vegan. In fact, I noticed that Miyoko's is going to be carrying cottage cheese. And it's so funny because just last week on the podcast, when I interviewed Rob and Nora of Grass Fed, we talked about cottage cheese especially in the bonus content, like a lot and how no one's made cottage cheese. And of course wow, I aired, was timely. I know I, I recorded it like, you know, a month ago or so it just happens to have aired exactly at this moment when Miyoko is announcing that she's going to be carrying cottage cheese. And so, yeah, that was kind of amusing. I am very excited for all of the people who seemed very, very excited that there was going to be cottage cheese. I have never been a fan, so it's not it's not really speaking to me. But I do love that that one more product has has fallen under the vegan hammer. But it's not just one more product. It's like this sort of product that was one of the very few ones that I don't think we had really successfully veganized. Yeah. And now we have. So yeah. For those of you who haven't gone vegan because you wanted your cottage cheese, <laughs> you now have no excuse. Yeah, and you're very odd. You're very odd. So we got this DM on Instagram, and I just wanted to have a second to sort of talk about it. I don't have the actual DM in front of me, but I remember the gist of it, which is someone who was very kind and it was a very polite, friendly supportive message. Love <laughs> she loves the podcast and I guess recently on the podcast she did have one criticism which is that you Marianne say pet instead of companion animal. And I admittedly found this DM late. You know, I think she sent it a while back. So I apologize we're working on our systems to re- reply to DMs more quickly. But I did think we could we could talk about it for a second because It's not like you're unaware. You're very, very aware of the issues. Yeah, I actually, I mean, I think I use them both. Right. You do use them both. I haven't made like a hard line decision. I'll never use the term companion animal. I only use pet. I I thought we could chat about it briefly because I know that like a lot of people who listen to this probably would never say pet. But I think that, you know, from where I stand, I'm, I, I think it's possible that some, in my opinion, and I'm I'm not saying I'm right here, but in my opinion, I think it's possible that that some people put a little too much energy on whether you're saying pet or companion animal. I'm not sure it's inherently creating a hierarchy by saying pet. I think it can be a really nice word and not necessarily a degrading one. And I understand that for some people it is, but I, I think that sometimes saying companion animals can actually draw more of a divide, create more of a divide between us and the mainstream. I, what do you think? Well, you kind of like said everything that that I think. I, yeah, I've never I've never had a big, big objection personally to the term pet. I, I've never thought it was demeaning or diminishing. I can understand, you know, where that comes from. I just don't really share that. I tend to be a little stubborn about, about word policing. I like to use 
the right terms. And I don't, like I said, I don't have an objection to companion animal. It's not like I won't use it. I just have never schooled myself not to use the word pet. I think it's kind of a sweet word to tell you the truth, but you know, maybe it is a little demeaning. I, I not to me, but maybe for some people, I do think that there is a, a little bit of a risk in using companion animal, especially if we're judgmental about it. And clearly this person who wrote in was not was not taking a judgmental kind of position, you know, of, of putting people off, like, you know, word policing can really put people off. But yeah, so I'm sorry if if my u- using it offends some people, I don't mean to, or offends any animals, I don't mean to do that either. I probably will continue to use both because not only am I not that into word policing, I'm really not very good at it. I forget the rules all the time about what, what you're supposed to say and and I never mean to offend anybody, but probably sometimes I do. Yeah. Well, you can't have opinions and not offend people. It's just not possible. I remember a while back. I'm not even sure it's so much of an opinion. It's sort of, I have a sort of lack of an opinion. Well, it, I remember a very long time ago, we used to talk about whether to say vegan or plant-based or the, or like, and I, I don't remember exactly where we shook out at the, in, in our opinion of that at the time, but I sort of think we were like, I mean, just stop eating animals, you know, like if you have very strong opinions about what you're going to call yourself, then call yourself that. I personally like the word vegan, but I don't really care if someone else says not say vegan. I say plant based. Like, I don't care. Yeah. And people attach a lot of definitions to the word vegan and very adamantly. But, you know, different people use the word somewhat differently. Some people incorporate all sorts of 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 justice issues into veganism. Other, for other people, it's absolutely completely limited to what you eat and, you know, probably what you use, whether you have use animal products in any way. Uh, you know, like it's language. It, it, it evolves and different people use it differently sometimes and, and new concepts can come in. And that's what language is like. So before we get to our interview with Hope, let's briefly talk about this article from Current Affairs which is called Why the Anti-Factory Farming Movement Needs Direct Action. And just to reiterate, this is from currentaffairs.org. So it's pretty, I, it's not like I'm, it's not like I'm pointing you to a PETA article. Yeah. Uh, Current Affairs, of course, is, is a mainstream. Uh, I don't think it's huge, but it's a mainstream publication. Mildly on the left, I think. Uh, somewhat on the left. And this is an article by Marina Bolotnikova, who I've been seeing a lot of recently. She is a reporter who uh, freelances, and she's been writing a lot about about animal issues. And she's amazing. I mean, everything she writes is absolutely amazing. I just wanted to recommend it to people. You know, I don't want to try to summarize it completely because you, it's not logging. You can just go read it yourself. But she's talking about the work of direct action everywhere and a, a little bit, too, about the work of Animal Save, mostly about DXE, just about this idea of direct action. And she talks about the work of Matt Johnson and the case that he was on, you know, not too long ago on our hen house talking about and the exposure of ventilation shutdown during the pandemic. And it's just an enormously positive positive article in a mainstream publication about how being radical or quote unquote radical, because it's not really that radical within the animal rights movement is absolutely needed. And we have to, we have to do this to get the word across. She says direct action, especially in the name of animal liberation is often maligned by people who don't know anything about it. They imagine reckless activists wreaking havoc for the sake of it. 
One reason for this is that the things these activists bring to light, like a baby pig maimed and left to die in the cold, can seem too horrible to be real. Then she goes on to say, which I just love, and their ultimate goal to end all mass production of animals for food can seem extreme if you haven't thought about what it means for living creatures to be reduced to commodity status, their bodies mutilated and optimized for making meat. I mean, you know, I don't expect to to see an article this good in mainstream public, in non-animal rights publications. So it just, I just wanted to pass it along and, and highly recommend her work to you. Wow, super cool. All right, we'll provide a link to that in the show notes. Now we're going to transition to our interview today because it's a conversation that is not had nearly enough. So I'm grateful to you, Marianne, and to Hope for Daojian for having it together. Hope is the president and CEO of Phoenix Zones Initiative. Over two decades as a double board certified internal medicine and preventative medicine physician, Hope has cared for individuals who have experienced displacement and violence, while she has also worked on policy to address structural inequities and human and animal exploitation. Her work across six continents has included collaboration with the Office of the Surgeon General of the United States and the development of medical, public health, and educational resources, resulting in her being named a Humanitarian of the Year in the American College of Physicians in 2017. In addition to her successful career as a physician, Hope has authored many articles, as well as her book, Phoenix Zones, Where Strength is Born and Resilience Lives, which focuses on ethics, global public health, and the link between human and animal rights, health, and well-being. She will be joining Marianne right after this. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Welcome to our hen house, Hope. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you here. There are some specific things we're going to talk about today having to do with animal research. You know, we we get into details. But before we do that, because you are known um, in the movement for your book, Phoenix Zones, and because your current project is called the Phoenix Zones Initiative, can you just explain for people who aren't familiar with it what Phoenix Zones refers to and what the Phoenix Zones Initiative is? Absolutely. So University of Chicago Press published Phoenix Zones in 2018, and the book, Phoenix Zones, Where Strength is Born and Resilience Lives, is based on my experiences working around the globe with human and non-human individuals and communities affected by all sorts of adversity, including different forms of violence over the years. And the phrase Phoenix Zones comes from a place where non-human and human survivors can rise up from the ashes, if you will, even after significant violence, significant adversity, challenges. People may be familiar with blue zones, which promote health and longevity. And Phoenix zones are places that fuel physical and mental wellness, recovery, and resilience. 
And they basically, they're virtual, they're real, and they all have a commitment to freedom, sovereignty, love, justice, and opportunity, basically the things that we need to thrive and to be well and to be resilient in the first place, but also after significant challenges. The Phoenix Zones comes from this idea of the Phoenix effect, which is something that's understood in the medical community where individuals can rise up and recover after health challenge or some type of significant adversity. Just to to give people a, a kind of example, and one that I think that we're all familiar with, one of the kinds of things that you um, feature is a, a sanctuary. And I think we all recognize that sanctuaries are places like like you just referred to, where this kind of healing can, can occur. And now you are you have expanded into the Phoenix Zones initiative, which I think is trying, it, forgive me if I if I misspeak, but is trying to create some real world implications from this idea. And one of your overall projects is called Just One Health. And before we get to that, obviously, for people who have heard of the One Health approach, which I think some people have, this is kind of a a reaction to the One Health approach, which is being bandied about by a lot of different folks right now. And you have, my understanding is that, that you have some issues with it. So you've sort of created this overall framework called Just One Health. But before we get into that, can, for those, again, who aren't familiar, could you just explain a little bit about the One Health approach, what it is, and maybe we can get into where, places in which it, it goes wrong. So as as you may know, and as Um, listeners may know, One Health is a widely recognized approach based on the interconnected health of humans, other animals, plants, and the environment. So it gets off to a good start. And One Health has received a lot more attention through the COVID-19 pandemic because of the likely origins of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. Of course, those origins are likely from animals, animal-borne diseases, zoonotic diseases, likely from a wildlife market. But One Health potential has really remained unrealized. Limited efforts have really focused on issues like food safety, antibiotic resistance, targeted zoonoses, animal-borne diseases. And ultimately, One Health limitations are linked to its failure to recognize how rights and justice determine health outcomes. Our Just One Health approach builds on One Health and expands it by centering justice as a primary mechanism for realizing optimal health outcomes. We cannot have health without justice, and rights and justice are absolutely essential to health and well-being for both humans and for non-human animals. This is a concept that's been recognized in the field of health and human rights for about 10 or 15 years at least. And we're just extending the framework to how we treat animals and the connections between human and animal and the environmental health and well-being. Yeah, it does seem pretty obvious that many aspects of justice have a hell of a lot to do with health. Before I go on, I'm just going to take an aside and just ask you if you've 
if you're familiar with One Health certification, which you may well not be, but I came across it in Googling about this. And it's just an industry, uh, factory farming industry co-opting of this One Health idea by certifying certain animal products as, as One Health certified. It was somewhat horrifying. I've come across the same and you're exactly right. The idea of One Health has been co-opted by industry and by some agencies, federal agencies and international agencies. And that's why we are pushing so hard for a just One Health approach because One Health is here, it's here to stay. And we need to push forward the idea that we can only have optimal health outcomes in humans and non-human beings with justice, with a just One Health approach. So as you point out, not only are there certain failures in the One Health approach when it comes to humans, but it just completely fails to to deal effectively with the treatment of animals. And, and you take this beyond, well beyond the pandemic idea that the horrors visited upon animals in live markets, which even that is disputed, of course. Uh, we're not sure where the pandemic, but but well beyond that. And you talk about like things like heart disease and cancer and and just ignoring uh, the implications of these diseases on, on the planet and on human health. Uh, is that right? Yeah. So our Just One Health approach allows us to look at policies, practices, research, and how we approach all of these areas. And basically, recognizes that we need to look at systems. We need to look at our food systems, whether we're talking about wildlife markets or factory farms, whether they're here in the U.S. or on the other side of the globe, whether we're talking about our research paradigm and what we prioritize in terms of research and our national research agenda. We are taking the Just One Health approach much beyond the pandemic and thinking about how we design our communities, how we relate to each other, how we treat animals in our homes and in our communities, as well as our food systems and our research systems and a number of other areas where we interact with animals, whether they're domesticated or living in the wild or in any other aspects of our lives. Yeah, so obviously this is a huge concept and will encompass many, many um, aspects and, and will address climate change, and, uh, you know, and of course pandemics and certain uh, fundamental rights for humans and animals. So that's the big picture. But I'd like to talk to you about some of the practical applications of this approach and how you seek to influence policy. We've kind of covered this overall view, but I know that one of the areas which you mentioned that you're specifically focusing on is animal research and honing in on what needs to be done. And as I understand it, one of the basic goals of your advocacy in this area is that the Belmont Report should be extended to animal research. I had no idea when I was reading this what the Belmont Report is, and I'm sure some of our listeners don't either. So can you tell us what the Belmont Report is and why it was so important? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just back up a little bit and share our overall mission with Phoenix Zones Initiative as well, if I could. Phoenix Zones Initiative advances the interconnected rights, health, and well-being of humans, other animals, and the planet through education, research, and advocacy, specifically advocacy for policy change. And we're especially focused on social policy, economic policy, and environmental policy. And our programs focus on just one health, as we talked about, focusing on the interconnected rights, health, and well-being of people, animals, and the planet, especially in policy. 
child protection, thinking about children as a vulnerable population, and then also animals. And in the area of animal protection, we focus on animal trafficking and other forms of exploitation and advancing research protections for animals. And in the area of advancing research protections for animals, we're especially interested in extending human research protections to non-human animals. And that's where the Belmont Report comes in. Fortunately, humans now have significant research protections that we didn't even have back in the 1960s. And in 1974, after there were a lot of problems with human research and a lot of public outrage about human research protections and human research projects, think about the public health study involving at Tuskegee, for example, basically public outrage led to the U.S. Congress appointing a national commission And that commission worked for about five years and ultimately produced what's called the Belmont Report. And the Belmont Report set forth key ethical principles, specifically respect for autonomy, this idea that we should be able to govern our own lives. We should have that freedom to govern our own lives and to make decisions for ourselves. We have that capacity. Beneficence and non-maleficence, this idea of do good and do no harm. And then this idea of justice, this idea that we should be fair. And so those ethical principles led to concepts like informed consent, risk-benefit analysis, and avoidance of harm in research, especially any kind of known harm, and the fair selection of subjects, and this idea that we should protect vulnerable individuals and vulnerable populations like children who can't provide informed consent and other populations that have been subject to different types of abuse and exploitation because of racism and sexism and ableism and other isms that have really, really been harmful to certain vulnerable populations. And at Phoenix Zones Initiative, we believe that this idea, a Belmont report for animals, should be pushed forward, that we should push forward this idea of extending these human research protections and especially sexual protections for vulnerable populations to animals. And if it were the case, it would essentially eliminate laboratory research involving animals if we were true to those principles for decisions about non-human animals. And this is true in research and it's true in other aspects of society. Yeah, let me take a a couple of steps back because this is fascinating. And I don't, as I said, I never heard of the Belmont Report. So Congress asked for this report. I assume that had to pass by a majority. Correct me if I'm wrong. So it took five years for a commission to put out this report and advising certain things, which seem very obvious to us today about about protecting vulnerable populations and, and particularly protecting those who can't consent, which is obviously very relevant to animals. So how is this? It's a report. How is it enforced? I mean, did it become law? So parts of the report led to codification. So the report actually has the weight of the law behind it, and especially when we're talking about protections for vulnerable populations. And for example, all institutional review boards at various academic and other institutions that have to review proposed 
research involving human subjects have to stick by these principles in the United States. The interesting thing is that these principles are also enforced in other countries around the world. There are similar principles in the Declaration of Helsinki and in the Nuremberg Code, for example. So there is this attention to respect for autonomy and special protections for individuals who can't provide informed consent, especially if we're talking about research that isn't beneficial to them. Yeah, what would those, I mean, I I guess that's another thing I haven't thought a lot about. If you're doing research on populations who can't consent, and as you say, this is research that's not for their benefit personally, maybe maybe for people who have similar conditions or I mean, maybe their children, maybe they have a certain condition that, that keeps them from consenting. And it's not necessarily going to help them, but it's very important information to help others. What are the protocols or guidelines that are in place regarding research on, on such people? So one of the most important concepts is that children, for example, shouldn't be exposed to more than what's called minimal risk. So the regular risk that they might experience in their everyday natural lives. And that means that a whole lot of research is just ruled out for children. And especially if we're talking about research that's not beneficial to the child themselves or to other children. And if there is a proposal that exceeds minimal risk, then it has to go through very special approval processes. It's rare that that happens because generally it's accepted that children will not be exposed to more than minimal risk. Yeah, one of the things that I find interesting is that it's clear from what you're saying that there's some research that we just can't do. I mean, that that seems obvious. <laughs> but when it comes to animals, that's always like like such a sticking point. Well, we have to do this. And like that's the starting point. We have to do this. So we have to come up with rules that will allow us to do it because we have to do it. Clearly, when you're talking about children or other vulnerable populations who can't consent, that's not a given. There There might be very useful kinds of research that we're just not going to do because it would harm the people who, who were subject to it. It's such a, a, a different mindset. So this pa- this was a report that was authorized by Congress, which already, that seems pretty hard <laughs> to pull off in today's, in today's atmosphere. But let's just talk about what it would mean to extend these requirements, or maybe something similar to them. Maybe you're not thinking of the exact same requirements, but uh, something similar to them to animals. What rules do you think would have to be imposed to meet the spirit of the Belmont Report. And just to be clear, we're not talking about asking Congress to authorize a report be published for animal research. We already have a lot of information out there, and my colleagues and I have actually written about this idea of Belmont Report for Animals and basically set out exactly what this would look like, applying these principles and these standards to decisions about animals. And so one of the things that would just generally not be permitted is basically a lot of the invasive research that we see. And just being kept captive in a laboratory would exceed minimal risk for the animals who we're talking about who are currently used in research. So that's one of the applications that would apply. It's worth mentioning that one of the vulnerable groups is prisoners. Prisoners are treated as a vulnerable population. So there are specific 
requirements. They basically can't be subjected to certain levels of risk because of their vulnerability as a result of their captivity. But even putting animals in captivity makes them more vulnerable, right? So that's something that would need to be considered when we're considering harm and risk to animals. I saw also that one of the things that you would want required is a lot more transparency. Can you talk a little bit about the lack of transparency and what you would like to see? So at PZI, at Phoenix Zones Initiative, we've been thinking about how to concretize some of these ideas so and to move forward, including where we might engage members of Congress and other stakeholders. And so there are a few things that we'd like to see. One is increased transparency. The GAO has already released a report, I think it was back in 2019, that basically says that there needs to be more transparency around the use of animals in research, and there needs to be documented efforts to move away from the use of animals in research. And so that's something that we would like to see more of just at a baseline. It's ridiculous that you have to submit FOIA request, for example, Freedom of Information Act request to get information about the ways in which animals are used. We still don't have good documentation on how many animals are used. And especially if we're talking about animals like mice and rats who aren't even covered by the Animal Welfare Act. So that's one thing that we are pushing for and we're engaging members of Congress, policymakers, other stakeholders on. The other thing that we'd like to see is demonstrated federal funding shifts. Because if academic institutions, if other institutions know that money is available for animal research, they are going to continue to do animal research. So we want to see clear federal funding shifts away from animal research and to more modern, ethical, human-centered research methods. And the other thing that we'd like to see is the establishment of a strategic roadmap. We need visionary leadership. We all need to be part of it, those of us who are stakeholders, um, especially those advocating for animals. We want to see a strategic roadmap so that federal agencies in the U.S., for example, start to create a path to move away from animal research and toward more modern, ethical, human-centered methods that are good for animals and that are good for people who would benefit from that research. Something similar has been done in the area of toxicology, and we'd like to see that broadened for all of research. It's a harder task. It's a more difficult lift, but we think that the vision and the strategic roadmap are absolutely necessary if we're going to get there. And that's something that we're working on at PZI, engaging multiple stakeholders. That's what I say all the time about animal agriculture. Like we're so far from from resolving all of the problems that that it's easy to just not think big picture, but we have to know where we, we're going if we're going to get there. Anyway, I'm distracting us because I really wanted to, I know you had a very recent panel discussion, which I think people can see uh, is available on YouTube. And can you just kind of give us with some of these experts that you're talking about that you want to bring together to think about these ideas? So what were the takeaways? So in January, we had an event on transforming medical research for people and for animals. And we had a lot of different co-sponsors from the academic community, from the advocacy community, Cambridge University Press, for example, Canadian Center for Alternatives to Animal Methods, 
the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado Medical Campus, the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at Upstate Medical University, Princeton University Press, the Society for the Study of Ethics in Animals, Chicago Press, and the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. And then we had a number of media partners, especially people from the animal community. And we had a range of panelists, Dr. Charu Chandrasekhar, who's the founder and executive director of the Canadian Center for Alternatives to Animal Methods, spoke about her own experiences as a former animal researcher and her own path where she founded and established the Center for Alternatives to Animal Methods in Canada, the first of its kind, fantastic institution. We also had Dr. Augustine Fuentes, who's a professor of anthropology, also has experience in research, and he talked about the need for an anti-maleficent, an anti-harmful research agenda, as well as other things. Dr. Sid Johnson, who's a neuroethicist and a professor at SUNY Upstate Medical University, she talked about human exceptionalism and problems with human exceptionalism, these ideas that we have about human superiority. Dr. Lisa Jones-Ingle is a primatologist who was involved in animal research and is now at PETA and helping with undercover investigations. Dr. Barbara King, who people in your audience might know, and Dr. Jessica Pierce, who is just so eloquent in speaking about the harms of research, especially captivity and other harms that go with captivity, all of the deprivation that animals experience as a result of their use in research that we don't talk enough about. And then Dr. David Winler. Dave is a senior researcher at NIH in the Clinical Center at the Department of Bioethics, and he has spent his, his career thinking about minimal risk and special protections for children and other individuals who can't provide consent. And he's written about and talked about applying those standards to animals as well. And so we had a great panel that talked about a host of issues, including the harms of research, how to address the harms and risk of research, and how we can move forward with a much more strategic roadmap that benefits both people and animals. Yeah, I would love to talk about that strategic roadmap because we, or one of us mentioned before, it might have been me, that, you know, it's hard to imagine going to Congress right now and getting a Belmont report for animals. We're not there yet. But you've also mentioned that you have been speaking to some people in Congress. So what is the first step on that roadmap? I, I know we are a long way from the vision, but what would be the next practical steps toward taking this from theory to action? So... One of the things we're doing is bringing together a range of stakeholders across medicine, public health, advocacy, the sciences, and so forth, and just getting folks together at a table. But in the meantime, we are working towards some of those outcomes that I spoke about. So, for, for example, increased transparency. That's something that we're working with members of Congress on. We'd like to see appropriations language or amendment language, for example, around increased transparency in line with the 2019 GAO report that calls for increased transparency around the use of animals and research. We're also doing our part to support bills that are in Congress right now. For example, the FDA Modernization Act, which people can learn more about on our website, either phoenixzonesinitiative.org, or you can simply go to Transform 
medicalresearch.org to learn more. That FDA Modernization Act would address a mandate that's older than 80 years that requires the use of animals in drug development. And it would basically give drug developers, pharmaceutical companies, the option not to use animals and to use more modern ethical methods that are much more patient-centered, human-centered. The other piece of legislation that we're supporting is a piece of legislation that would basically establish a center to promote the use of alternatives to the use of animals in research and testing at NIH. And it would also go further and require more transparency and reporting, again, in line with some of the recommendations of that 2019 GAO report. So that's just a couple of the things that we're doing from a policy perspective. So as always, we have the big picture of what we really want, and then we have steps towards that. And, And you have outlined some of them. I assume people can find out more about those bills on your website. But you had mentioned in the beginning that you have two real areas of practical focus to bring your bigger vision into effect. And one is animal research and the other is animal trafficking. And here you are also actively supporting bills in Congress. Can you just, before I leave you, can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, there's a couple of bills in Congress right now that would basically address animal trafficking, specifically wildlife trafficking. There's a bill in the Senate that people can learn more about that would prevent the next pandemic. It's an act that was introduced by Senator Booker and it has bipartisan support. People can learn more about that on our website. And there's some bills in the House that would also address and prevent the next pandemic by addressing wildlife trafficking. Yeah, and that certainly seems, I mean, if Congress can't manage to pass a bill that would make wildlife trafficking less likely, given what we've been through, then I don't I don't know what. Like, that really seems like an area in which progress is actually possible. So there are these important practical implications, along with your very big picture view of the way the world should look and, you know, which is outlined to some extent in your book, Phoenix Zones. And I should mention that you're going to be reading an excerpt of that for your for bonus content for our flock, which we're very grateful for. And I'll just leave you with this question. Since you wrote Phoenix Zones, it, it is kind of hard to say that the world has headed in positive directions. We've like we couldn't have even anticipated what was coming down the road. But but the work does continue. So are you hopeful that even given the way things have gone, that things are going to improve? So I think hope is absolutely necessary for the work that we all do. I write about this in my book, how hope is in many ways therapeutic and feeds into optimism. And so I have hope every day because I have to. But I, I think that hope is an action. I don't think it's just an idea. I think we have to act on that hope to generate more hope and more optimism for the future. Because the alternative is despair and sort of sinking into our despair and not doing anything. And really, that's just untenable. You know, we absolutely can and have to make a difference every day. And even if it's small steps, I mean, we are very focused at at PZI on addressing structures, but we also realize that addressing structures means reaching out to individuals every day, changing hearts and minds, and taking the smaller steps, even smaller policy steps, 
toward that greater, larger vision of a better world for human and non-human beings. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more about all of that. Hope is incredibly important, and sometimes you just have to manufacture it, and and that's what you do. And we have to have a big vision and then break it down into small steps if we actually want to get anything done. So so, uh, thank you so much for joining us today to explain more about, about the initiatives, and it's really been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Hope. Speaking of hope. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you for having me. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. Some crazy stories this week. All right, our first one, this is from Watt Agnet. And the, the title of this article, which I don't understand what this title means, but whatever. PETA continues to mislabel vital farms on welfare claims. This is by one Meredith Johnson. She starts off by saying that PETA has filed a second lawsuit against egg producer Vital Farms, which is very similar to a 2021 lawsuit, which claims that Vital Farms eggs were not raised in a manner consistent with the brand's advertising. Uh, And consumers were tricked into paying a premium price for the product. I think these are all one lawsuit. I mean, I'm not sure, but I, I don't think there was actually a new lawsuit. Anyway. So, yeah, this is like a premium brand. Uh, You know, I'm not sure exactly what they say about uh, the eggs. It doesn't say here. But, but, you know, they expect people to pay more because the animals are treated well. And according to PETA, they do things like male chick culling, debeaking, and have their pasture-raised practices are, are faulty. So she goes on to say, this is a good one, so pay attention. The common egg industry practice of humanely euthanizing male chicks after hatch has been challenged by animal rights groups. Humanely euthanizing. I mean, how Orwellian are we going to get? This is the practice of picking out all of the male chicks when the chicks are are hatched and and throwing them into a macerator or perhaps just into a big bin where they suffocate to death. Like, wow. 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 I mean, the, the word for youth, the, the term euthanizing has, has been, of course, incredibly distorted by the animal industries to mean like killing them for because we don't want them, which is not what euthanizing is supposed to mean and not what hopefully it means when we're talking about humans. But humanely euthanizing. Now, now we're adding that. Unbelievable. She goes on to mention that Vital Farms is continuing to invest in research and exploring options that can can be scaled to a commercial level in order to to avoid this process, like sexing the chicks while they're still in the egg. Uh, As they hatch out of their little egg and and start peeping and are thrown into a macerator, I'm sure they're thrilled there's research going on. All right, then the beak trimming standards. Beak trimming, you know, when they cut off their beaks. To keep birds safe from each other and prevent cannibalism. Because, you know, 
chickens actually wouldn't exist if if they they're apparently if we didn't we didn't cut their beaks off because they would cannibalize each other. It's hard to imagine how they came into existence and how any chickens whose beaks aren't cut off actually managed to last since they are natural cannibals apparently. But you know whatever. And uh, then the term of pasture raised, which means it's this is uh, what does this sentence mean? which means its layers have a minimum of 108 square feet each to roam in an outdoor area, whether the hens choose to use it or not. Uh, okay. <laughs> Whatever, honey. She also goes on to say, you know, that PETA is, is terrible and, and they, they have a vegan agenda. <gasps> How terrible. And they really want to end animal agriculture. And then she goes on to say, this is my favorite sentence. Additionally, PETA has a strong history of capitalism, meaning that it is willing to twist the livestock industry's motives using marketing strategies to play with the general population's emotions towards animal welfare. I have to say, I never knew that that's what capitalism was. <laughs> if there's one player in this whole story who's not the capitalist, I think it would be PETA. Well, this is a weird one. Another, to, another article from the same uh, website, Watt Agnet, Family Egg Farms not factory farms, feed the world. Okay, well, let's start off with the idea that you can have a factory farm that is a family farm. <laughs> like, just because a family owns something doesn't mean it can be a factory farm. Then they have this picture of this uh, egg-laying facility, which might be supposed to be in China because they do talk a lot about uh, uh, international and about Chinese methods, but I'm not sure. And, it, you know, it's a factory farm. Like, the hens are all in, in cages, and they, they're crammed in like crazy. So what do you think a factory farm is, sweetie? This is Vincent Guyanette who wrote this. Family-owned farms feed the world, and while some may grow to be large scale, they should never be called factory farms. Uh, why? <laughs> like, why? And he goes, just goes on and on to talk about how families own these businesses, as if being a member of a family which we all are or have been at some point in our life, makes you exempt from morality. I don't know. It is worth summarizing the key points that may be used when accusations of being factory farmers are leveled at egg producers. It's dominated by family enterprises, owned and operated by families, and not only that, often started by a single person with a real vision. Like a single person starts a business and that means that they're exempt from, from every rule of common decency. I don't know. Then he goes through all of these egg facilities in Australia and Calmaine Foods in the U.S., which was founded by a visionary individual whose family members are still active in egg production. Even though it owns 43.5 million hens, it should not be called a factory farm because uh, it was started by a person who was in a family. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Data from the International Egg Commission. This is in support of his thesis, by the way. The trade body that represents the egg sector with members in over 80 countries reveals that the average size of a farm is under 50,000 hens in most countries. Like what? Like who cares? I mean, all right. So egg farms are smaller than in other countries. They're smaller than ones in the United States. But 50,000 hens, you don't think you can call that a factory farm? These people are nuts. All right, finally. This is from meetingplace.com, from the Chew on This column by Charlie Arnott. Icon Move begs new approach to ESG commitments. 
By ESG commitments, he's talking about environmental, social, and corporate governance commitments by corporations. And he's referring, of course, to Carl Icahn, the the billionaire independent investor who recently tried to get two new members on the McDonald's board of directors in order that the company would change its policy on sow housing, I mean, getting rid of gestation crates, which, you know, good for Carl. Appreciate the gesture. And this writer here believes that this reflects a growing challenge and opportunity for companies across the food system. Then he has to give a little aside. Quick aside, while this block is not about sow housing per se, it's worth noting that most animal welfare experts and swine veterinarians agree that limiting a pregnancy house movement for four to six weeks while pregnancy is confirmed is the right thing to do because it reduces the likelihood of miscarriage. Well, all right, I'm not a swine veterinarian, I admit. Yeah, I'm not working in the industry, but I don't agree. And I bet a hell of a lot of people don't agree either. God. Anyway, he talks about um, Icon, who's, you know, a billionaire and, and something of an anomaly, but is worried about this increasingly popular strategy of bringing together these claims uh, based on the interests of various stakeholders. Obviously, we're among them. And what he really suggests is that sometimes they're in conflict with each other, since this is really hard to do. There are now more than 250 ESG attributes, including health and wellness, worker treatment, food waste and packaging, climate change, diversity, and inclusion. Doesn't mention animal welfare, of course. And uh, he says organizations just can't effectively manage this. So basically his point is that they should all work together, (laughs) which seems a little anti-competitive to me, but he thinks they should do pre-competitive collaboration, partnering with others to better understand and manage complex issues, blah, blah, blah. Don't you just hate corporate speak? is an essential strategy that builds both capacity and capability. While the position any organization takes on a given issue is ultimately the responsibility of that organization, partnering with others on a pre-competitive basis leverages collective expertise. He wants to avoid a situation in which industry players actually are competing with each other on things like animal welfare. And, you know, it sounds like an an antitrust violation to me, but I I know I'm a lawyer, but that was not an educated opinion. (laughs) I don't want you to think it was. But there does seem to be something. Let's all get together and decide what we're going to do. And then we can't screw each other for and, and get into a competition for treating the animals better or creating, treating humans better or avoiding illness better or doing anything better because God forbid we should do anything better. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at ourhenhouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using our henhouse as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, 
and to Vicki Bieschler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you.